if you're thinking about stopping but you haven't stopped it's very important to like start analyzing how it actually makes you feel before during and after your drinking um, I think that's incredibly important it goes way beyond the physical and actually the mental is often the most powerful part of it welcome to the show that drops in on people's moments of clarity surrounding their choice to not drink I'm Kate Madry, and I'm so happy you're here. Sobriety is like a thumbprint, and just like your skincare routine or your self-care routine, everyone's sober care routine is very different. By the end of each conversation, you'll leave with a little bit more insight to help guide you while building your sober care routine. This is a clear-headed podcast. I am so excited to bring you this conversation that I had with William Porter, author of Alcohol Explained. This conversation is so information-packed, but incredibly digestible, just like his book. We talk about everything from what cravings are, how long withdrawals physically last, where you can mentally pivot to make setting down alcohol that much easier, and how important it is to move to a lifestyle where not drinking is just a fact, not a hurdle. I'm so excited to talk to you and know more about your story. I read a bit about it in your book and on your website, but I think we should just kick it off by diving in the way that I always dive in on these episodes, which is if you could kind of time travel with me back to when you started to realize that alcohol was no longer serving you. What was that moment or what did those moments uh, look like? Yeah, so I, I, I was drink. I was always a binge drinker and, and my drinking was getting increasingly heavy and the binges were lasting longer and longer and longer. And I think for me, I, I don't think it was necessarily a single moment, but it was kind of an ongoing thing. I think being a binge drinker, I used to stop drinking quite regularly, but I would always get dragged back to it. Sometimes I'd stop for just a few days. Sometimes I'd stop for a week. A couple of times I stopped for months but I was, I would always get dragged back to it. And I think what I eventually realized was the thing that was always dragging me back was the belief that I would be happier if I had a drink or happier if I was drinking. And I think what I started to realize was it was completely the opposite. And I'd realized when I was sort of sat there drinking and completely comatose, I started to realize actually I'd be happier if I wasn't drinking. So it was almost like turning things on its head and thinking, what am I doing? You know, how am I actually feeling right now compared to how I would feel if I hadn't drunk? Um, and it wasn't a particularly attractive thought. And it started to, as I say, really turn things on its head for me. Yeah, I agree. It, it isn't like an attractive thought. It's a very necessary thought, though. And I think being able to decipher the ugly all ugly as it may feel to ask those questions, uh, to compartmentalize it as very necessary is like seemingly what you did and what I think the goal of everybody is when they're kind of questioning their relationship with alcohol. Um, and your your journey <laughs> is so interesting because um, I read that you had read Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Quit Smoking. Yep. I read Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Quit Drinking when I was like kind of sober curious. And okay. so 
why I really connect with you and why I think a lot of listeners will connect because you are so focused on the logic behind whatever it is that you're doing. Because really when you break down drinking, binge drinking, social drinking, here or there, all the time, there's really no point. And I want to know your experience with Alan Carr's easy way to stop smoking, do you think that influenced like your ability to ask those ugly questions, however necessary they are, like while you were going through it? Yeah, I think so. I think that definitely gave me the mindset to really question what we would, what, what I was doing with drinking. And I think one of the important things with Alan Carr was he almost turned, I mean, he, he specifically, you know, he, his niche was smoking, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I, I smoked for many years and ended up stopping eventually with his method, although it took me quite a few attempts. Um, and I think what I found interesting with him, he almost, so usually when people are thinking about stopping drinking or smoking or whatever, the, the logical way to go about it and the way we often go about it is to sort of almost list all the negatives keep our mind focused on all the negatives and then sort of grit our teeth and and try and get through what we think of that initial period until we get used to not having that drug in our lives anymore. But what I found very interesting with Alan Carr is he he almost turned it on his, on its head. He almost like lists or list all the reasons you want to keep doing it. And let's really deep dive into those and analyze them and see if they're true or false or not. Because a lot of the things that keep us drinking are our beliefs about alcohol. So, you know, we believe that we need it to socialize. We believe that nights out are more fun with it. We believe we're not going to enjoy vacations as much or Christmas or holidays, whatever, without a drink in hand. And they're very deeply ingrained beliefs. In fact, most people don't even think of them as beliefs. They think of them as just facts. They're just lived facts. Mm. Um, But when you start to really delve into them, and, like, as I say, pull them to pieces, you actually find that virtually all of them are false, completely false. Yeah. Did you, because you were kind of constantly asking or maybe more occasionally asking than say me who really wasn't asking those questions, especially when I was like drunk, like Mm. do I really like the way that I feel? How do I, like what am I getting out of this? Did you have kind of a gradual... um? coming to terms with the fact that these beliefs in fact aren't fact that they are just kind of I don't know propaganda in some way of thinking that you needed to have fun like how was that process for you so for me it was a long process because it started while I was still drinking as I say there would be times where I would be sat there thinking okay I'm gonna feel awful tomorrow but how do I actually feel now this is the bit I'm supposed to be enjoying it um, what's actually enjoyable about this? You know, if I'm out with friends, mm. it's the friends that's the enjoyable bit. How's the alcohol actually made me feel? Um, but then after I quit, it took me a long, long time actually to come to the full realization that so many of these beliefs aren't true. And um, one of which, so so when I quit drinking, as I say, my, my drinking had got more and more out of control and I almost quit. It was Nine and, a, nine and a half years ago now. So February next year will be my decade not drinking. But when I hit that point, my mindset at the time was alcohol helps me deal with stress. I needed to socialize. I've always been quite introverted and I don't really enjoy social situations. And my mindset then was I can't keep drinking because it's just taking so much. It's destroying so much. And if I keep going this way, I'm going to lose, you know, home, family, job, everything. So I had to quit. But I kind of resigned myself that 
okay, I have to give it up. I'm never going to enjoy social events again. Vacations are never going to be quite the same. I'll never really enjoy it. That, that's what, how I was coming to it. Um, yeah. So for me, it was a very long process where before I was giving up, I was kind of thinking it all through. And it was after I gave up and almost continued to apply things and sort of went on social events and vacations and Christmas and thought, hang on, why would I need alcohol to enjoy this? Um, and and it, so for me, it was a very, very long period. Obviously, it doesn't need to be a long period. You can educate yourself, you know, in a, in a far less period of time. But for me, it was that lived experience over quite a few years that finally kind of until it all clicked into place. And then did those experiences help fuel your book and your drive? Like what was your own moment of clarity for creating alcohol explained so that was basically it so the the thing that motivated me to write alcohol explained really is I'd gone through a couple of stints of going to AA um, and I found it quite I, I found the I found the, the the talking to people was phenomenally important and I found that really powerful but I struggled a bit with the steps um, and how and why they could help. I've always been a bit of a, you know, I'm happy to do stuff if I can see a reason for it, but I like to understand the reason. Um, so I think I struggled with that a bit. But what I realized is that most people, when they're starting to question their drinking, have questions about it. You know, why can't I moderate? Can I moderate? And if I can't, why not? And why can't, why can they have one or two drinks? And I struggle to have one or two drinks. And why do I feel tired every time I have a drink, even if it's only one or two? What's it doing to me? Um, so I started to think it would be useful to set out my understanding of all of that into a sort of a book form um, to see if it would be helpful for people. So that was really how it how it came about so it was the years before I'd quit of my own experience of drinking coupled with I suppose my experience of having quit um, and you know surprise surprise a lot of my beliefs even on the day I quit were completely um, erroneous because of course you yeah. don't need alcohol to have fun or enjoy vacations. Isn't that beautiful though that you can evolve your perspective on something and it can actually just become more comfortable more um, true, more factual. I mean, I think I just went to a wedding this last weekend with my girlfriend, Sarah, and we were like, okay, this is kind of like the first wedding we're doing where we haven't been drinking. And I looked around and it's not a judgment of other people, but I just remember being where they were, where it was like the bar was the center of the event, the where the next drink was going uh, was always kind of in rotation. Um, the things that made me happy were like, you know, the free flowing wine and going at it in a new perspective and having evolved, like I was just so excited that there was cake. <laughs> I was like, really, yeah, I was pumped favorite. that there was like a good DJ. <laughs> I was so thrilled to meet new people. And just like my perspective and my purpose and my focus had like evolved so much. And it was really beautiful to see. And so it's so cool that you yourself even had such a evolution on where you thought fun had to live or did live when it comes to, you know, social events. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's one of the things with alcohol, and, and this is what I would say to people: is a lot, of, a, a lot of you know the things we take for granted aren't actually true with it. And I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there. I think my perspective on alcohol now is far more. I'm far more comfortable with it than I was when I was drinking because when I was drinking, it was almost like an excuse thing. I felt like I needed it. 
and I block, mm. you know, when I was drinking, I deliberately didn't think about how awful I'd feel the next day or, you know, how much I was spending on alcohol or the rest of it or what it was doing to my fitness or my energy levels or anything like that. I sort of closed my mind off to it. And that's never a comfortable place to be mentally where you've got something and you're desperately trying to ignore it. Whereas yeah. now I'm completely, you know, I'm completely happy with my perspective on it. It feels like a much, well, it is a much truer perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a good point. It is such a mental workload to navigate everything. And even I think the idea, which you talk about in your book, how, you know, people who don't want to drink stopping cold turkey and really how you define stopping cold turkey is stopping with no understanding of how uh, alcohol actually works. And I think that that is so true because it goes beyond the physical stop it's the mental rewiring and the the mental stop what what would you say is like a good first step for somebody who's kind of ready to dive into you know the understanding how alcohol works I mean obviously order the book (laughs) (laughs) Um, but what else do you suggest I think it's I think it's very important and this is something I spent a lot of time doing we've already alluded to it but if you're thinking about stopping but you haven't stopped it's very important to like start analyzing how it actually makes you feel before during and after your drinking um I think that's incredibly important and I think it's absolutely correct what you're saying it goes way beyond the physical and actually the mental is often the most powerful part of it Um, And one of the examples in the book, obviously, I talk quite a lot about cravings Um, Mm -hmm. and I use the word craving in, you know, in its traditional sense of that overwhelming desire for something. But I think what you need to what people need to remember is craving isn't an all or nothing. You know, people do have cravings, but sometimes it can be milder than a craving. It can be almost like a distraction, just a niggly voice at the back of your head. Now, that's incredibly important because that almost turns alcohol into a placebo because I I quite often give this example. Say, you know, you're going on vacation, right, and you've just arrived and you're sitting out by the pool or you've had a bad day at work and you're finally at home and you can relax and have a nice meal and just switch off from the day or you're going out socialising with friends, people you genuinely like and want to spend time with. Now, all three of those things are inherently enjoyable okay you should be able to go and do them and enjoy them and be completely happy but the problem is you can only enjoy those things if you're focusing on them and intent upon them okay if you're distracted from them you won't be able to engage properly you won't be enjoying the time with your friends you won't be relaxing you know with your meal after that hard day at work you won't be enjoying the holiday because you've got this unpleasant, almost like mental tantrum, a should I, shouldn't I going on in the back of your mind. Yes. Now, there's lots of ways we can stop that tan- that internal voice. But the quickest and easiest way is to just have a drink. Because you're not thinking about whether I sh- or not I should have something if you're currently drinking it. So that yes. feeds into our experience. And while a lot of people, they, you know, this is not an uncommon thing. People, you know, if, if you recently in the UK there's been a lot of problems with delays over holidays and I I was giving a talk the other day and I said to people well hands up who's going on holiday and most people and these are people 
medical professionals. So they didn't, these aren't people who have got their own issues with alcohol or want to stop. These are just, you know, what we would think of as normal, regular people. Um, and I said to them, what if you got a call just before your holiday? Because a lot of holidays are getting cancelled at the moment. Um, and the, the call said, to the, or the caller said, the holiday's on, but there's absolutely no alcohol. There's no alcohol at the airport and there's no alcohol on the holiday. And that really got people thinking because these are people who don't think they're reliant on alcohol, but the thought of going on holiday and not drinking spoils it for them. And if you <sighs> think about it, why would that be the case? And it, a holiday is enjoyable. Why would you need a drug, a, a sedative in order to enjoy it? Well, the answer is only if you're used to taking it. And if you go there, you've then got that, as I say, that voice in the back of your head saying, I want a drink, I can't have one, wouldn't it be much nicer if I could have a drink? So at that point, the alcohol actually becomes a placebo. It's not the alcohol, it's just it's just quietening that craving, that distraction in your mind. Yes. Ah, oh, that's such a great example. Because we don't we we don't realize how um Ugh, gosh, just like foundational sometimes we've made alcohol or really it's quite anything. Insidious, I mean, isn't it? Yeah, it really works it its way into every aspect of our lives until we become not phys- not necessarily physically reliant on it, although some people are. But as I say, there's a lot of people who will quite happily go all week without drinking, but they, you know, they get quite unhappy if they can't have a drink on a Friday or Saturday or if they're out with friends and they can't have a drink. So it's not a physical right. reliance, but it's definitely a psychological reliance. And I mean, I even just think like, why would you want to give something so much power? You know, like if you can rewire, if you can reshift your perspective to making it so that that has absolutely no um, influence on your happiness levels, whether it be at a vacation or a party or a night off, um, why not work towards that? You, You point out this fact in your book. Uh, that physical withdrawal is over after five days, period. So then it really does shift to just mental. Um, How did you like, how did you navigate that in your own journey? How did you navigate or were there any like tools that you used for when you maybe were having a craving or when you were having kind of that voice in your head? Um, What are some things that you turn to to kind of help that in a healthy way? There's a few things you can do that the, the best way of doing it is to completely shift your perspective, because if you can see alcohol not as something you want, but as something you no longer want at all. OK, so you, when you get to that stage, you're not resisting temptation. You're just not tempted in the first place. So so that's almost like the holy grail. That's the best place you can get to is just to not want it because. Yeah. You're not going to sit there thinking, you know, for example, you wouldn't crave, I don't know, sticking a pin in your eye. Do you know what I mean? You don't have to resist (laughs) doing it. It's just not something you want to do. And you wouldn't be distracted sitting there thinking about it. And again, you can do the same with alcohol. If you do not want it, you won't crave because a craving, you know, people think of cravings as, you know, something that just happened to you, like almost like a meteor Mm. falling out of the sky, being hit by lightning, but they're not. They're this mental process by which you start fantasizing and obsessing about something. So if you do not want it, you don't get into that situation in the first place. So that's one of the best things you can do. Um, For my own part, I kind of, I I found it quite useful to be very, very pragmatic because I've just used the word fantasizing. Fantasizing is a big part of craving. 
because when we're sat there fantasizing about something, we really do fantasize about it. We make it out to be far better than it would be. And I think for me, being very realistic is what I think one of the main tools that I found extremely useful. So let's say, for example, you have a bad day at work and you start thinking, oh, I really want to drink. What we start thinking is, is I'll pull that glass of wine or I'll pull that ice cold beer or whatever it is and I'll drink it. And all my worries will just miraculously disappear. And that's the image we have in our mind. And that's what we're looking for. And that's what we're after. But of course, when you have that drink, it doesn't do anything of the sort. You've still had a bad day and it's still there behind you. You may have a mild amount of a sedative in you, which is making you feel slightly comatose and not really with it. But that actually hasn't got rid of anything. So what I used to do is to sit. So when I was thinking, oh, it'd be really nice to have a drink, I used to stop myself and stop and think, right, how will this work out? Okay, I'll have a cold drink. It will taste slightly unpleasant because alcohol is a poison and it does taste unpleasant. I'll then feel slightly dulled for maybe 15, 20 minutes, and then it will wear off, leaving a corresponding feeling of anxiety. And then I'll need another drink to get rid of that extra feeling of anxiety and so on and so forth. And then I'll go through the usual very disturbed sleep that drinkers get um, and feel awful the next day. And I think when you start to go through that realistic process, it, it does change things quite drastically. The, the other thing I used to, so the thing I used to hate about drinking was those three, 4 a.m. wake ups. You know, when you wake up feeling really anxious and yes. can't get back to sleep no matter how tired you are. So every time I'd look at a drink and say, I'd, you know, you know, it's nice weather at the moment, you might walk past a pub and there's people sat there in the beer garden drinking a beer and you, your immediate reaction is, oh, that would be nice. But then mm. I would just stop and think, hang on, I'll be waking up at three or four in the morning feeling horrible and unable to get back to sleep. So almost changed my, you know, that knee jerk reaction you have when you see a drink of thinking, instead of thinking, oh, wow, that would be nice. I would look at it and think, oh, my God, that looks awful. I really don't want that. Yes, that's so, I think that that's so achievable. Like, I'm sure it is. I mean, I can speak from my own experience. It's definitely like a muscle. I think you get, it gets easier and easier and easier to jump to those kind of de-romanticize it, pull it out of this idea you have and, and ground it in reality. But it is, it is so helpful, um, to just try to do that whenever you're having the craving or whenever you're feeling like you catch yourself kind of romanticizing the drink, the beer, the poison, honestly, and even just maybe just flip it out with poison. I don't want a beer. Wow, I'm really craving poison. And I can guarantee you your brain is going to really start to question why exactly you're saying that sentence so heavily to yourself when your feet are in a pool. Um, <laughs> one of the last kind of excerpts of this phenomenal book is uh, the question we ought to be asking ourselves is not, do I have a problem and need to stop? But am I getting more out of this than I am putting in? And that I think plays really beautifully into what you just said, which is let's really start asking questions based in logic, not in these kind of grandiose jumping to the biggest conclusion or the biggest solution or the best epic evening because there's cosmos involved. And really just see if if we're getting as much as we're putting in. Um, was that a question that you 
like how did you stumble upon that realization because I think that's such a great pivot I think understanding a lot of the ancillary effects of drinking was one of the big ones for me. Starting to understand that those three, four a.m. wake ups were directly related to the chemical effects of alcohol. So when alcohol wears off, it, it leaves you feeling anxious and overstimulated. It's like drinking too much caffeine. You know, when you that horrible feeling you get when you drink too much caffeine. Yes, it does exactly that. Um, and so many people I've spoken to, they don't realize how much alcohol impacts their sleep. So when we, you know, naturally as human beings, something happens and we get a fairly immediate cause and that's compartmentalized in our life. So a lot of the time we have a drink and we feel better for having it. So we're like, oh, that's good. That's a nice experience. And we kind of understand that if we drink too much, we might get hung over. Um, but apart from that, we kind of see alcohol as being positive and helpful and with very little downside but when you start to understand that every alcoholic drink interferes with your natural sleeping pattern it doesn't matter how little you're drinking you might only have one small glass of red wine a week that is impacting your natural sleeping pattern and that is impacting your energy levels and how confident and resilient and happy you feel the next day alcohol also increases your heart rate and again people kind of understand that what they don't necessarily join the dots is when your heart rate goes up, you want to sit down and rest. The faster your heart is beating, the more your brain is saying, sit down and rest. So when you're taking a chemical that increases your heart rate, you're immediately robbing yourself of energy. And that increasing heart rate, even with small doses of alcohol, hangs around for about 24 hours after you finish it. So when you start to factor all of these things in, you start to see alcohol in a very, very different light. Because at the end of the day, you know, anyone who drinks alcohol, be they, you know, people who only have, you know, like I say, a small glass of red wine once a week, or people are drinking three bottles of spirits a day, wherever you are on the scale, there's always like a balancing act between the pros and the cons of drinking. And it's very, very different for people, you know, where they are on that scale. But for most of the time, it's tipped in favor of carrying on drinking. Whereas actually, when you start to look at the bigger picture, you realize it's completely the other way. I, I did something on Instagram the other day when we did like a 12 or 24 hour clock um, and the perceived benefits of alcohol, you know, the initial drink, you know, the hit you get off that drink and the taste of it maybe last 10, 15 minutes. And then you have that residual anxiety, the bad night's sleep and the increased heart rate for, you know, 24 hours afterwards. So you're getting 15 or 20 minutes pleasure. And I put that in inverted commas because it's not true <laughs> pleasure anyway. And then you're right. paying the price over the following 24 hours. And that's yeah. for one glass. But if you're drinking more, then the downside incrementally increases. Um, and I think that's that's really what I was getting at in that point there in the book, is that when you start to understand it and really appreciate what's going on, you start to realize that the price you're paying is just way, well, certainly I did. In my opinion, it was far too high for what, you know the small amount of pleasure I was getting out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think a big part of this too is really giving yourself permission to like shatter what you have thought for however many years that you have been a drinker on this planet, uh, socializing on this planet, um, because it is totally the opposite of what we've all been taught, what we see on ads, what we see in movies, what we read in books. Um, it's completely the opposite. So also, I think kind of bracing for that shattering 
although it's very necessary and great and a mosaic is created out of those broken pieces that's better and stronger than ever, um, it can be a little overwhelming, I think, for people to digest. But I, I do think that this book is incredibly digestible. I like that you don't say you have to, you know, quit drinking before you read this. There's not a ton of pressure. And I really appreciate all the logical points and the research and just the facts that you have laid out. So thank you for creating this book. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I want to finish this incredible conversation with um, what I think I'm maybe one of the more curious things I have about you, which is what is something currently in your sober care routine? The big thing for me is exercise and it always has been. So I was in the military many years ago. And so they, um, we did a lot of exercise. It was kind of forced upon <laughs> us. And what I would find is I'd be doing it thinking, oh God, I hate this. What on earth am I doing here? But then afterwards I'd feel really good. And I carried that on after I left the military into my civilian life. And I think that's one of the big things for me is exercise. It, it makes you feel good. It releases endorphins. You just feel great for the whole day. Um, and unlike alcohol, there's, there's no downside to it. Um, it's, it's all beneficial as far as I can see. So that, that's one of the big things for me. Um, I also like reading as well. So that's, that's another big thing. I think alcohol at the end of the day is like a lot of things. It's a way for many, you know, people drink for lots of different reasons, but I think there's a significant number of people who drink to switch off from stress. So for me, losing myself in a good book does exactly that. I just, you know, I shut off from the day, whatever's going on, and I just lose myself in a good book. But I think that's what you need to do. You need to find that thing that you really enjoy doing, that you enjoy it so much when you're doing it, you're 100% taken up in it, and you forget all the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that have been going on and can just switch off for a bit. Yes. Uh, I love it. Well, thank you so much for your information and your insight. And I now feel like I have alcohol a little bit more explained to me. (laughs) So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) For more guidance on building your sober gear routine, head to clearheaded.co or follow us on Instagram at (laughs) clearheaded.co.